Rugby league is full of ridiculous stories. Australian journalist and author Glenn Humphreys has done his best to capture some of the wildest tales in his new book, Jack Gibson's Fur Coat, Rugby League Oddities and Artefacts. Glenn's written a wide range of books about topics like uh, crossing beer, music and even the true crime story of the Kingsgrove Slasher in Sydney. His latest book is a treasure trove of stories that show how much has changed around the sport over the years, but in some cases it hasn't moved on at all. Glenn is a lifelong league lover. He's with us from Wollongong. Uh, G'day, Glenn. Welcome. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Now, we've got to uh, start, first of all, with what the big fur coat reference is, please. And uh, shut your ears, listeners. It's kangaroo fur. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the Jack Gibson, he was a, a famous coach in rugby league, best known for winning, I guess, three premierships with Parramatta in the early 80s. Uh, and in the 1983 grand final, he wore a, a massive kangaroo fur coat. Uh, and it was, you know, he was in all the photos that day. There's photos of him next to then Prime Minister Bob Hawke celebrating with that big fur coat. And, and it just really became, an, uh, I guess, an icon of the game, that is one thing every any, any footy fan knows the story of the fur coat. Um, it was, and the funny thing about it is, we don't know where it is today. It, it's gone missing. Um, they had a one of his former players. He gave it to one of his former players who was going over to England uh, to play. And before he left, he put that with a whole bunch of other stuff in his car to go into a shipping container to send over there. But the car got stolen from the docks in Sydney, and by the time the police found the car, all the stuff inside had disappeared. The, the thief had thrown it all away. So we don't know where the coat is. It could well be hanging on, you know, uh, just hanging on a coat hanger in an op shop somewhere in Sydney. Uh, it's like the search for the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant, or name your artifact, your icon. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think if someone ends up grabbing that, I think you probably couldn't put a price on it. What makes an item become an artefact? Oh, I think it's hard to tell. I think those sort of things, obviously, it's it's quirky and unusual. No one's worn a kangaroo fur coat um, since then. Uh, but it's just, I guess, stuff that stands out and as being unusual and, and different from what we're used to. How did you pull this compendium together uh, over time? Because it's a heck of a history. Uh, it's various strands of history. Uh, was it a brainstorm in your own brain, a brainstorm with others to come up with a list of this kind? Uh, well, some of the ones um, I had known about myself and was just interested to find out a bit more. Uh, I've got, and also had a few books about that came out during the centenary of rugby league. And each each year they would have like a little snippet of news items that happened that year. And I would always be struck by looking at those little snippets and thinking, I actually want to know more about that story. Why aren't you telling me that story? So for a lot of the times, for instance, the, there's a story in there about drunk footballers taking the field in the 1950s, I think. So that was one I went, oh, I have to know more about that one. So I sort of, you know, sort of went through the old uh, newspapers from that era just to find out what actually happened and it was a true story uh well did they just have a champagne breakfast or what um 
No, they were. It was the, the Canterbury Bankstown team. They were the grand finalists that year and had arranged to go to Queensland just to play a, I guess, a, a local match to, I guess, promote the, the the Sydney competition elsewhere. The locals obviously just wanted to see how they stacked up against the second best team in the Sydney comp in the Big Smoke, um, but even they weren't expecting the locals to win sixty to two. Um, and they got real suspicious that some players didn't look interested. They were staggering around. They were dropping the ball. They were missing tackles. And they thought they can't be drunk. But, yeah, some of them were. They'd actually had spent the morning drinking on and off. And then they got to the game and there was nothing to do for about two or three hours beforehand. So they had a few more. And then by the time they got on the field, they were very much under the weather. And it also and it resulted in the coach being so disgusted he actually quit. He couldn't handle coaching this team anymore. I can't say I blame him. Look, some of the stories though are just so out there, and I know everyone loves chapter thirteen. I think it is. Um, let's let's get stuck into the story because it takes a wee while to tell. Uh, it's entitled "Murder and the Mother-in-Law." Uh, what unfolded? Um, yeah, that's. I've done a number of interviews. That's the story everybody is immediately drawn to, and it's, um, it's it's easy to see why because we're used to players getting involved in scandals today. But uh, I think that one, you know, no one's beat it to to, to my knowledge. Um, it involves a, a player called Bobby Lewham. He was uh, had played a game. He didn't feel that well, sore legs, and the next day he collapsed at work. He went to the uh, to the hospital and they diagnosed him as having suffering from uh, thallium poisoning, which is uh, basically rat sack, rat killer. And in the 50s, there was a whole rash of um, cases where people were being poisoned um, by rat killer, especially with um, spouses wanting to um, you know, get Off rid of the their other. partner and they would sort of poison them. And then he, um, he was living with his wife and his mother-in-law and, and it transpired that the mother-in-law meant the rat sack for herself, but she also made was mixing it up in a, a warm milk. Bobby and his wife wanted one as well, so she made three and uh, got the glasses mixed up, and it ended up being that Bobby got the one with the poison in it. Um, so the case had to go to court, even though it was an accidental poisoning, and that's when... Um, all the, the dirty laundry came out because it transpired that Bobby and the mother-in-law were actually, let's just say they were very close indeed. <laughs> um, while they were, you know, while he was living in the same house, she was living in the same house with him and his wife, he would be listening to the ashes over the radio and canoodling on the lounge uh, late at night while his wife was in bed. So the mother-in-law was basically doing the dirty on the daughter. Uh, look, this is positively Shakespearean, right down to the poisoning, isn't it? Yeah, it, it definitely is. They um, they never admitted, I guess, they, that they went all the way. Um, but you, the the weasel words they use suggest that they might have, and it was certainly in the court. It was certainly a um, a big draw card for spectators. There would be reports of women taking a packed lunch and queuing up outside the courtroom, waiting to get in to get a seat to hear, I guess, the the latest scuttlebutt. I guess it was very much like a, a modern-day soap opera where people just wanted to watch what was going to 
watch the fallout, watch watch what was going to happen. It was probably Peyton Place in those days, the, the soap opera du jour. Uh, this one would have knocked the socks off it. Uh, explain a little bit more. This is the NRL trophy itself, which is another icon, uh, uh, in fact. But, of course, uh, there's this great photo of Arthur Summons and Norm Proven um, embracing, but actually not quite all was what it seemed. Yeah, that was it was during a... Uh, one of the Dragons' 11 premierships in a row. I think it was the 1963 grand final from memory on the mud heap of the SCG. And there was widespread rumours that the referee, Darcy Lawler, had backed the Dragons to win and so wasn't going to let uh, Western Suburbs um, win at all. Uh, I'm not too sure about that because there were times during the game where he could have ruled a certain way which would have helped the Dragons rather than West's, but he ruled in West's favour. But at the end of the game, uh, the two player, the two captains, Proven and Summons, uh, were exchanging jerseys as they did at the time and they had their arms around each other. Photographer grabs, snaps that photo and it just becomes known as the Gladiators and becomes this iconic image of the game. Um, but it turns out that from Arthur Summons, he was saying, telling Norm Proven when he, at that time the photo was taken, that he thought, you know, the fix was in. He thought we weren't going to win because the ref was a cheat. So he was giving him an earful, so to speak. There's some really interesting kind of um, sports history on a broader sense here. There's the attempt to get Americans interested in rugby league. Uh, and you, th- it seems to be a recurring thing, actually, and rugby gives it a go sometimes as well. But, of course, they've got their own football code. Uh, but what's the backstory of this with respect to Australian league? Um, yeah, well, in the 1950s, a, um, a US promoter, he came, over, he came up with the idea to bring a team of the American All-Stars to come over and play uh, a whole lot of uh, rugby league teams, both in the Sydney competition and... Uh, in uh, regional centres because the regional football, regional teams were really still quite popular and still quite strong. The game was quite strong in those areas. Um, they didn't do too well at first um, when they were playing like New South Wales or Queensland. There's stories of New South Wales, I guess, letting them score or letting them win a scrum because if they played, if the locals played to their best, they would have actually thumped um, the Americans. Uh, the promoter was often called, you know, I guess, a scallywag, a con man. Uh, came came to the Australia selling him we could make a rugby league big in the US. And then uh, after two months when the tour ended, he was basically saying, no, that's never going to happen. So it was, he went over there to basically con the locals into having paying for this uh, tour, telling them that the the rugby league would be a success in Australia, in uh, in America, and um, he never thought that was actually going to happen. And uh, bounce checks, unpaid bills and all the rest, lots of injuries as well. And there's another renewed attempt, isn't there, to, to get league matches into the US, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, as, as I understand, they're looking at doing some, I think maybe the first round next year in Las Vegas, um, and I guess from our perspective, you know, we think it's a big deal going over there to play. I'm not sure how um, excited all the Americans are. I tend to sort of feel like the uh, game in the 80s where they played a state of origin game in Long Beach, California. 
I think the Americans tend to view it as a bit more of a, a novelty than anything else. You know, they just want to watch it because they're amazed at players hitting hard without helmets or padding or anything like that. And it's, yeah, it's just, a, I guess, a novelty more than anything that they would actually want to follow week to week. Now, so as you said, they've got their own code of football they're quite happy with. Yeah. Uh, rugby league players getting into boxing. We all thought it was a recent thing. We've got a pretty uh, useful um, Kiwi, although we share him with you sometimes, who's um, handy in the ring as as well as uh, on the league field and the rugby field. But uh, rugby league players have been doing boxing for quite some time. What's the story about uh, eastern suburbs and their captain, Ray Stair? Yeah, he was. there had been a number of players who have gone and uh, done boxing around their um, rugby league commitment. Some would have a boxing match that night and the next morning they'd turn up for a trial match, so they were quite serious about it. But Ray basically, uh, I think there was a, a match they had to win to get into the finals, and Ray decided instead to honour a commitment he'd made to go for have a boxing match. So he missed this game that was really important to his team season. Um, they lost that game. Um, surprisingly, the coverage, media coverage doesn't suggest he suffered any massive fallout from it, but you'd have to think that his... Um, that his teammates were not too impressed with um, what he chose to do, that he chose to sort of ignore them and go off and fight a boxing match, which I think he lost. Uh, You mentioned alcohol earlier, and it's long been a problem in the NRL. Um, We can see back in 1947. Was that the one we were talking about earlier, the Canterbury-Bankstown team, or is that someone else? Ah uh, no, that yeah, that was the, the Canterbury Bankstown team, and uh, even then they were destroying hotel rooms again back in the forties. Ah oh. uh, yes, that was yeah the New South Wales um, rugby league team had gone to play the in, play the final of the interstate series against Queensland in Queensland. This was back when pretty much New South Wales won every year. Uh, there was a one-all. The series was tied at one-one. They won the f- the final game. So they won the series and then afterwards a whole bunch of them decided to, I guess, party on and that involved breaking beds, smashing chairs, pouring those old um, ashtrays you'd have in hotels full of sand. They would pour, they poured that onto teammates' um, heads and they actually ended up having to leave in disgrace and ultimately ended up blaming the organisers of the event because they didn't plan things to keep the players busy so they wouldn't actually misbehave, which I think is probably not fair to think, you know, grown adults should pretty much know not to trash hotel rooms on their own without having to, you know, have alternate activities um, planned for them. It's been a decades-long issue, hasn't it? Uh, And many sports struggle with it, but league appears to have a particular issue with it. There's a chapter on the worst team ever. I'm I'm trusting the, the Warriors aren't in there. They're certainly not in there this year. Uh, no, the, the Warriors are not the worst team ever. Um, there's, I guess, two candidates for that. There's one, uni- one university was the one in the early years of the competition where they would just lose year after, lose, finish last or second last year after year. I think from memory they uh, were wooden spooners three times in a row and then they went better one year and then the next year they were started another three-year stint where they finished last on the ladder. Uh, and there was also when Canterbury-Bankstown came into the comp in 35, um, they, in successive weeks, they lost um, first round, first game to the Dragons. They lost 91 to 6. 
And then the sec- next week they lost to um, Eastern Suburbs 87-7. to And those two scores are still the, the top two highest um, winning margins in rugby league history. They're not that high, actually, compared to other codes. Uh, the Roosters were the first to take on sh- uh, shirt sponsors, and I suppose it went nuts from there, did it? Yes, yeah. It was for a long time you would see uh, pl- old footage of games, and they would just have the jersey with the the logo or the emblem and no sponsorship. Uh, the the Roosters sort of went to sign up a deal with um, City Ford, a, a car yard in Sydney had to get approval from the league to do it. The league obviously saw it was, a, I guess, a, a bit of a bit of a way for clubs to get extra revenue. So they would be the first to wear, have a sponsor's name on their jersey and pretty much everybody sort of got on board very quickly and within, I think, a year or two, you sort of pretty much had every, um, every team had a sponsor on their jerseys and it's been that way ever since. You don't see jerseys without, you know, now it's like three, four, five, different companies plastered on the jerseys somewhere. Uh, the names are fascinating too. You list where all the names come from at the end. We won't do all of them, obviously. The Roosters pinched theirs from a touring French team in the 50s and 60s, so that's a fairly easy one to answer. Um, Parameter uh, Eels has got an interesting backstory, Glenn. Yep, yeah. For, from memory, they were... It means... Parramatta means the place where eels lay. Huh. And I think the name was suggested by a, a rugby league journalist... Peter Fal- Peter Fralingos wow. that they should be called the Eels um, because for a long time teams didn't have a mascot they didn't have an official team name it was just something that was given unofficially by spectators and fans so it wasn't really until maybe the, the 50s or 60s that you start to see um, the teams formalizing these nicknames so the Dragons the Magpies the Eels the Rabbitohs right one doesn't want to think about where that comes from where's the Rabbitohs from um, there is uh, one school of thought that suggests it was came from the call from rabbit sellers that were walking around during the depression, who was was selling rabbits so they could have people could make rabbit stew and the like. And he they would say rabbito, rabbito, rabbito when they were walking down the street. And so those people got called uh, the rabbito man, and that sort of happened in and around South Sydney. So there's a suggestion that that's where the name the rabbit rabbitos came from. It seems to be the best. Suggestion for why they would call themselves after a rabbit. And it brings it back to the idea of it being the working man's game, uh, women's game now as well, but it's history, the working man's game, Glenn. Fascinating uh, insights. Thank you, Glenn Humphreys. His book is Jack Gibson's Fur Coat. You don't want to Google and see what a kangaroo coat looks like. It's, it feels wrong on many levels.